Amen. Please be seated. And uh, children, um, if, uh, if you're willing and your parents want you to go, you can go to Children's Chapel with the Ryersons. And you can uh, turn your Bible now to Amos chapter 6. Um, So we're accelerating through the book of Amos. I think I mentioned this uh, last time. Uh, taking mostly a chapter a week uh, through the rest of the book until we hit um, chapter 9, probably break that into two, two weeks. But um, just a refresher, Amos was a farmer from the southern kingdom of Judah when the kingdom of Israel was divided into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Amos was a farmer from Judah who was sent by God to the northern kingdom uh, of Israel uh, in order to declare judgment on the people for um, the things that are brought up in, uh, in this book in particular, their, uh, kind of their affluence and the complacency that's um, associated with that and uh, their neglect of uh, social justice, the kind of corruption of the judicial system, and their uh, contortion of uh, religion. The, the judgment that Amos was there to uh, proclaim that was uh, looming over all of them for their sins it would come upon them in the next generation. Um, so Amos was probably working sometime between 780 and 750 B.C. It would be in 722 B.C. that um, nearby Assyria would uh, invade them and conquer them and carry them into captivity and basically that kingdom would be dissolved uh, forever. Uh, the application of this prophecy to our lives today is not to warn us that God is going to bring in some foreign nation to wipe out America and replace our culture with their culture um, like he did with ancient Israel. Uh, a lot of Christians, I think, believe that um, you know, because of the sins of our nation, things like the practices, the open practice of homosexuality or the, um, the, the practice of abortion, um, that because of those sins, God is going to deliver America into the hands of her enemies. Right? Um, that may or may not be true. And there is no way to tell. Uh, the, the Bible doesn't give us a way to, uh, to find that out. Uh, this book is not about that. Amos isn't talking about the sins of those liberals out there who are ruining our country. Um, the book of Amos uh, is about the sins of the conservatives in here. Uh, those sins, affluent complacency and the neglect of social justice and uh, contorted religion, those sins are our sins. Right? Sins of those who are in the church, sins of conservative uh, People. And this book exposes what's going on deep inside of our hearts. Right? Uh, it's not just a way for us to be able to look at other people and condemn them for the sins we can clearly see in their lives. It exposes what's going on inside of us uh, on a deep level. And the warning is an eternal one. It is not uh, a minor matter of nations invading and conquering nations. It's bigger than that. So... Let's give God and his word the attention that he deserves. Let's, um, uh, let's pray, and then we'll read the scripture. 
Father, we come to you uh, and ask you for help as we consider your word. We pray that you would grant us the spirit to uh, help us to understand your word and to be changed by it. I uh, can't believe we're asking for it, but we want to be convicted of our sins and we want to be um, shown who we really are, which is usually not a pleasant picture, but we uh, want more than that. Um, we pray that you would not leave us there, but that you would uh, assure us of the forgiveness and grace and peace that we have uh, through our Savior Jesus Christ as we come to this text. So uh, we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Amos chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory, O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence? Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there still anyone with you? He shall say, no. And he shall say, silence, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands and the great house shall be struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. And they shall oppress you from Labo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> There's not much pleasant in there. <laughs> but uh, I think it's good still to be thankful for it. Um, as we look at the text this morning, we need to think about, I think, just three things. Pretty, pretty standard uh, sermon you're going to get here this morning. Um, first, what's really going on uh, inside of our hearts, inside of the hearts of people who are like us? Second, what do we deserve for that? And um, third, what should we do about that? Um, so what's really going on inside of our hearts. Uh, we can start with the externals, which um, are fairly clear from this text and from the whole book of Amos. 
Um, and then we'll follow God's word as he traces them to the roots, to the internals, to what's going on uh, in the heart. Uh, in, in verse 1, I'll read verse 1 and verses 4 through 6. Um, it says this, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin, literally over the breaking of Joseph. So you've got here a, a long list of indictments, right? These are the externals. There's aggravated self-indulgence. There's extravagant laziness, there's gluttony, there's frivolity, there's vanity, there's blind uh, security, there's neglect of um, social justice, neglect of the poor. Um, wait a minute, you say, where does it talk about social justice and the neglect of the poor? I see those other things, I understand the uh, laziness and the indulgence, but um, social justice, well, <clears throat> it's in um, kind of two parts. In that first uh, the first verse, it's the notable men, right, to whom the house of Israel comes. These are the leaders of the country, the leaders of Israel who are meant to be um, judges in Israel. They're meant to, to uphold justice and righteousness in the uh, judicial system, right? People have complaints against one another. They go to these men uh, for, for their wisdom, uh, for their fairness, right, their justice, um, and for their, their good counsel and decision-making uh, judgments. Um, and, and these men were, um, as we've seen through the book of Amos uh, to this point, uh, they had uh, become corrupt. They were taking bribes. They were ignoring the poor uh, in favor of the rich and selling the poor into slavery um, to appease the rich, to, uh, you know, it's the good old buddy, buddy uh, kind of backdoor dealing, you know. Um, Give me a little bit here, and I'll give you what you want on the, the floor of the court. And that guy suffers for it because he can't do anything about it. He doesn't have enough money to bribe anybody. Um, the poor get trampled on and oppressed. Um, and then there's the allusion to Joseph at the end, right? Uh, you may remember the story that young Joseph was envied by his brothers, and they conspired against him to fake his death and to uh, sell him into slavery, get him out of here. We hate him, right? Um, Alec Motyer says that Joseph was the lad who wailed his heart out in a deep pit while his brothers sat down to eat. And that's the picture that you have here. Um, the people of prominence, the people who are leaders, um, who are representatives of Israel sitting down to, to gorge themselves and satisfy all their own desires while there are those who are poor and broken uh, ruined in the deep pit right next door, <laughs> crying out for help while they sit down and eat. Uh, it happened all too frequently in ancient Israel um, that the sufferings of the poor could have been alleviated by the generosity of the wealthy, but the wealthy bought big homes with expensive furniture, and they stocked their pantries with food and drink and enjoyed it all for themselves to an excessive degree, but didn't invite the poor into their homes to feed them and to care for them. They didn't pursue justice for the poor. They didn't share their resources with the poor. They didn't obey God's command to love their neighbors as themselves. Right. 
And in fact, they flew in the face of that command. They extorted the poor, uh, all the while feeling comfortably secure as the notable men of the first of nations, as those who had obviously found favor with God above all others. Any of this sound familiar to you? The false sense of security that we see in, um, in verse 1, it points us to the root of the problem, to the, the internals, what's going on inside the heart. And also in verse 2, it says, Pass over to Calna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? So, um, at the time of Amos' ministry, these were relatively insignificant little pagan city-states on their border. Not even really qualify as nations, right? Um, little pagan city-states on their borders. And Israel would have disdained them. They did disdain them, uh, not only for their size, right? They're no threat to us. In fact, we're kind of controlling them at this point. Uh, we throw our weight around. We have influence in the area. Um, we don't have to worry about them. We look down on them for their size, but not only that, but because of their false religions, right? Their, their idols, their immorality. But Amos asks the rhetorical question, are, are you better than these kingdoms? And a person who is um, honest and thoughtful, which is remarkably difficult to do and be, um, a person who is honest and thoughtful will say, no, I'm not better than them. Uh, we're not better than them. God had repeatedly reminded Israel that they were not special in and of themselves, right? Um, <clears throat> that there was nothing in and of themselves to commend them to God in a special way that elevated them above their surrounding neighbors, right? They were a nation of descendants from Abraham who was just some guy from just some obscure part of the world, right? Um, the only thing that set them apart was God's sovereign grace, God, of his own free will, had chosen a nobody nation and he had showered them with his mercy. They were no better than anyone else. The only thing that set them apart was God's mercy. <clears throat> but when they were asked the question, are you better than these kingdoms? Their answer would have been, yeah. <laughs> Look at those immoral pagans. They're relativists. They don't even believe absolute truth. They don't believe in the one true God. They kill their babies. And they act like savages. We have God's law. We do a pretty good job of keeping it. <clears throat> so yeah, we're better than these kingdoms. Even God's own prophet, Jonah, would have said so, right? Jonah, the, the evil prophet, he's a bad guy, right? His book is all about his own persistent disobedience, his own jealousy, his own self-righteousness. He probably um, lived during the time Amos is preaching. He's probably a, a young guy when Amos is an older guy. And um, so he had Amos's words ringing in his ears that Assyria this neighboring country that was growing in strength was going to come and wipe out his nation when God told Jonah, go to Assyria. 
go to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, and preach there. And Jonah didn't want to go, right, because he knew that God would have mercy on the Assyrians. He says it clearly. I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to have mercy on them. And he despises that, right? He can't stand it. Why is it, why is that bad? Why could Jonah not stand the fact that, he, that God was having mercy on the Assyrians through his ministry? It's because Jonah couldn't stand being on equal footing with those liberal pagans out there. On equal footing. Couldn't stand it. God's grace cuts us all down to the same level. If you don't deserve God's favor, if you need God's grace just the same as those immoral, irreligious, wicked scoundrels, uh, that means that you're no better than they are. And that strikes right at your pride, doesn't it? And, um, and we conservatives have let our pride drive and shape our lives, just as much as anyone. Uh, we've accumulated wealth and comfort and security, and we think we've gotten all that for ourselves by our superior morality and wisdom. Verses 12 and 13 do horses run on rocks? Um, it could be interpreted, do horses run up cliffs? Does one plow there? Maybe uh, that actually means, does one plow in the sea? Uh, Hebrew's a little difficult sometimes. Uh, does one plow in the sea with oxen? These are ridiculous things, right? But you have done a ridiculous thing. You've turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, which is literally nothing. It's a place uh, with a name that sounds like nothing. You who rejoice in this place that you've conquered, nothing. Uh, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim, which is, um, means horn. It's another place. The name means horn, which is a symbol of power. Haven't we by ourselves captured power by our own strength for ourselves? We, the deserving have gotten this for ourselves, which in God's sight amounts to nothing. Right? Um, but we, the deserving, since we've gotten it for ourselves, we deserve it, we have license then to withhold our resources from the undeserving who are all around us. And um, in our pride, we ignore the fact that we're just like everyone else, also undeserving. And in doing so, we've... Uh, flipped justice on its head. We've turned righteousness upside down. Right? And this is why it's better, Jesus says, to be poor and hungry and tormented and weeping in order to be more in touch with your total need for God's mercy and for his help. Right? Alec Motyer, a commentator, says, um, when they saw Samaria in ruins, in 722 BC, when mothers had been bereaved of children, husbands of wives, when there were many orphans, many pauperized, many homeless, did they ask why? The Assyrians did it, said some. And they were right. God did it, said some. And they were right too, both in relation to direction and permission. Our leaders did it, was the opinion of yet more, and they too were right. Pride did it, said Amos, 
And that was the most realistic of all appraisals of the enemy of the people. That's our pride. So, uh, so what do we deserve for our pride? I mean, our, our pride tells us that we deserve God's favor, right? Um, sure, nobody's perfect, but I'm not that bad. I, I try my hardest. Uh, I do good most of the time, compare myself to other people. You know, I'm, I know I'm better than those people, right? Um, but this is what God says about people who think of themselves as first, as uh, kind of the cream of the crop, right? the best of the best. In verses 7 and 8, therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, which are representations of his pride and power. Um, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And then in verse 14, I'll raise up against you a nation to oppress you. So this is, this is retribution. Right? This is the exact reward for the deed. This is what they truly deserve. This is what pride deserves. Which is to say that you should never insist upon getting what you deserve. You should never insist upon getting what you deserve. That would be very bad for people like you and me. Uh, who have persistently exalted ourselves to the neglect of God's word, who have pursued our own comforts and our securities above pursuing God and his kingdom and his righteousness, and who have, um, think we've gotten everything that we have by our own power, by our own strength. God made us, and in our pride we insist that we have made ourselves and that we deserve to enjoy the fruit of our labors however we like. Our pride um, shrivels up our souls and it burns bridges between us and other people and it is a, a shaking fist in the face of our creator. And God hates it. He abhors our pride, the pride of his own people. And when, uh, when the Almighty, the king of the universe, hates what's at the core of your being, what drives most of your life, um, then you're in trouble, right? Um, James puts it this way, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what do you do about it? Clearly, you should not want to receive what you deserve from God's hand, right? Uh, but how does that happen when God is a righteous, just holy God who will by no means clear the guilty, as we read in our uh, call to confession of sin. The, uh, <clears throat> the Lord has sworn by himself. He's sworn by who he is and all of his power and authority as the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of armies, the one who has an army on Israel's doorstep waiting to destroy them for their sin. He has sworn by himself that the guilty will always get what they deserve. So what hope could you possibly have to avoid that? You should humble yourself before God and bank with all of your soul, not on the fact that your humility is uh, something that would commend you to him. Bank with all of your soul on the God who gives grace 
to the humble because he does give grace to the humble. And his grace, it doesn't ignore his justice, right? There's a big problem with our sin, with your pride that God hates. His grace does not ignore his justice. His grace absorbs his justice, right? The condemnation that proud people deserve, people like you and me in the church, condemnation that we deserve was intercepted by the one who never deserved it. God in his mercy sent his son to receive what was yours by right. Jesus Christ, the innocent one, saw the wrath of God coming at you like a freight train um, and he shielded you with his own body and with his own soul. And he died bearing the punishment that you deserve. And if your faith is in him, then you don't get what you deserve, which is good news. You get what he deserves, which is incredible news. All the rewards of heaven, the great delight of the the father for his perfect beloved son, coming toward uh, the one who is innocent, who is righteous, who is holy, and that's shared with you by God's free grace but only as you give up your pride and you humble yourself, only as you admit your need for his mercy that you're not better than anyone else, no more deserving of heaven than anyone else. And uh, let me tell you, killing your pride is a lifelong process. That's why you've heard this sermon before, and that's why if you stick around, you'll hear it again. (laughs) You know, killing your pride is a lifelong process. But once you've stopped, you set it aside and you stop trusting in your own righteousness to make you acceptable in God's sight, to find favor with him and a real relationship with him, and you put your faith in Jesus, then you're united to Jesus and all that he has is yours forever and nobody can change that, right? Um, Hopefully you've read this book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. Um, If you haven't read it, you really should read it. And... uh, Brian has first dibs on it. <laughs> I'm going to let you borrow this. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's one of my favorite books. Um, but if you don't know the story, it's, uh, it's a fiction, and it's about heaven and hell, the great divorce. It's that chasm that separates heaven and hell. And the story is basically there's a bus trip, there's a, a field trip, an excursion from the outskirts of hell to the outskirts of heaven. And all the inhabitants of hell when they get to heaven on this bus trip, those who go, um, they find they're, they're really ghost-like, right? And heaven, this, this, the outskirts of heaven at least, is so real and so solid compared to them uh, that the blades of grass hurt their feet for them to, to walk on them. And they, they meet these people that they knew in their, um, in their life on earth, and they have these interactions with them, and uh, it's, it's a really revealing uh, story about the way that people interact with each other when they're hell-bound uh, or when they're heaven-bound. And um, there's, a <clears throat> there's one of these interactions that I, I want to highlight for you. One of them is a ghost, and he's the big ghost. He's a big man. He's a big shot, good guy, right? Proud. And he runs into a guy that he knew on earth uh, who was a murderer. And um, he says this, What I'd like to understand, said the ghost, 
is what you're here for, as pleased as punch, you a bloody murderer, while I've been walking the streets down there and living in a place like a pigsty all these years. His murderer friend was real and in heaven, and here he was, um, the ghost, walking the streets of hell in misery. What's the deal here? He says, I've gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man, and I don't say I had no faults, far from it, but I've done my best all my life. See, I've done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. Never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. And if I took my wages, I'd done my job. See, that's the sort I was, and I don't care who knows it. And the, uh, the saint who's a murderer <laughs> says, it would be much better not to go on about that now. Who's going on? I'm not arguing. I'm just telling you the sort of chap I was, see? I'm asking for nothing but my rights. I've got to have my rights, same as you, see? Oh, no. It's not so bad as that. I haven't got my rights, or I should not be here. You'll not get yours either. You'll get something far better. Never fear. And the ghost says, it's just what I say. I haven't got my rights. I was done my best, and I never done nothing wrong. What I don't see is why I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. And he says, who knows whether you will be? Only be happy and come with me. What do you go on arguing for? I'm only telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. He says, then do at once ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking. And nothing can be bought. Ask for the bleeding charity. Everything here, everything that God has is yours for the asking and it cannot be bought. Your pride, it doesn't matter in God's sight. Uh, trust in him for his mercy. Ask for the bleeding charity. Let's, uh, let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, once again, we um, are humbled by your word and we pray that you would drive your grace uh, deeper into our hearts, that you would change our minds by it so that um, we would run more quickly to your grace and not to our own righteousness, not to our own uh, wisdom or our own morality, uh, not try to muster up a good enough feeling about ourselves and who we are in order to present ourselves to you. We pray that you would help us to do away with our pride and to... Um, to become truly humble people under your grace, because your grace is great, and it's even unimaginable that you would shower your mercy on people like us, and yet you have, through the sacrifice of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we give you thanks for him and for all the benefits of heaven that are ours by your free will, by your good grace and favor toward us through Jesus. We thank you for him. And I pray that, um, that he would be exalted now as we come to this, uh, this time of fellowship around your table, that the one who is our salvation would be the one who is exalted and not we ourselves, uh, that you would erase our pride as we come forward to partake of this meal that is uh, freely offered, and it's for the asking but cannot be bought. We pray that you'd be present with us at this table. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.